Last week we looked at what took place once Joseph and his brothers were reconciled. And I tried to use it as a, as a trampoline into the new year. So there was this a newness in their relationship, a freshness. Um, the old things had passed away and all things had become new in Joseph's relationship with his brothers. And so I tried to encourage us, maybe in this new year, as this year's getting started, we can remember our reconciliation to God through Christ and use some of the things in Joseph's story to help us to move forward. Standing still does no good. Moving backward is worse. What can we do to move forward? And so I gave us a few things. We used the scripture and the scripture's uh, description of human nature as our guide. God's word gives us an accurate picture of what humans are like, how we respond to good things, how we respond to hard things. And then it tells us some stories, particularly in the Old Testament, about what people did and, and how that turned out. And so we tried to use that as a jumping off point. What can we do here in the new year? What is it that we can just set aside so that we can move forward? And we recall Joseph as clearly a type of Christ. We use chapter 45 of Genesis as an encouragement in our own lives to do three things, to draw near to Christ, to know he will provide all we need, even in a foreign land, and to live differently than we did before we were reconciled to God in Christ, namely in love and unity. And we will continue in that line of thinking and see what else we might pick up from considering Jacob's journey to Egypt with his family. So what we'll do first is we'll read Genesis chapter 46, we'll pray, and then we'll discuss that chapter. Genesis chapter 46, beginning in verse 1. So Israel took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. Then God spoke to Israel in the visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, here I am. So he said, I am God the God of your father. Do not fear to go down to Egypt, for I will make of you a great nation there. I will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also surely bring you up again. And Joseph will put his hand on your eyes. Then Jacob arose from Beersheba, and the sons of Israel carried their father Jacob, their little ones and their wives, in the carts which Pharaoh had sent to carry him. So they took their livestock and their goods, which they had acquired in the land of Canaan, and went to Egypt, Jacob and all his descendants with him, his sons and his sons' sons, his daughters and his sons' daughters, and all his descendants he brought with him to Egypt. Now, these were the names of the children of Israel, and it goes through and it lists a whole lot of names that if I attempt to read, I'll mispronounce, but it lists each of his sons and their descendants. And so we'll pick up the reading, uh, verse 28. Then he sent Judah before him to Joseph to point out before him the way to Goshen. And they came to the land of Goshen. So Joseph made ready his chariot and went up to Goshen to meet his father Israel. And he presented himself to him and fell on his neck and wept on his neck a good while. And Israel said to Joseph, Now let me die, since I have seen your face, because you are still alive. Then Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, 
I will go up and tell Pharaoh and say to him, My brothers and those of my father's house who are in the land of Canaan have come to me, and the men are shepherds, for their occupation has been to feed livestock, and they have brought their flocks, their herds, and all that they have. So it shall be when Pharaoh calls you and says, What is your occupation? That you shall say, Your servant's occupation has been with livestock from our youth even till now, both we and also our fathers, that you may dwell in the land of Goshen, for every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are thankful for this passage of scripture. We're thankful for the encouragement it gives us, for the insight it gives us. We're thankful that these are your words that you caused your servant to write. And so many years later, we look at them and we learn. We learn of our Savior. We learn of ourselves. Father, there are in this room this morning those that are struggling. It's not well in our souls in many cases. Things are hard. And I just ask for those that are experiencing that kind of pain and that kind of hardship, that kind of sadness, that this morning you would, by your Spirit, minister to their hearts. And for those of us who at the moment it is well with our souls, that we would come alongside those that are struggling and be an encouragement to them, to put our arms around them, really, or in our minds, emotionally put our arms around them, and carry them for a time when it's hard to walk. And we ask that we would do this in love and in unity, following, following the example of Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. So a lot of great things have happened. Jacob finds out that Joseph is alive, and Joseph says, come to Egypt. So Joseph sends them a bunch of carts and says, okay, load these up and, and come back here. We'll take care of you. So Jacob loads up, and he begins the trek to Egypt. And he stops, it says, um, it says that he took all of his things and all of his descendants, and he came to Beersheba. And I, I looked at Beersheba and, and um, had a look at a map and, and looked at uh, other references in the Bible about Beersheba. It was really the southernmost point of the land of Canaan. If you were traveling from Canaan to Egypt, when you came to Beersheba, you were exiting Canaan. You would spend some time in a disputed land or kind of a desert sort of area, and then you would come into Egypt with all its rich fullness. And if you were going from Egypt to Canaan, you would go through a bit of a desert time, then you would come to Beersheba, and that was the entry point. Uh, that was like the border crossing into the land of Canaan. And a lot of things took place in Beersheba. And it says that Jacob stopped there to offer sacrifices. And I began to think, well, why, why there? Well, both Abraham and Isaac lived for a time in Beersheba. So Jacob's grandfather and his father lived there in Beersheba for a time. And uh, there were some other things that took place there. Um, Abraham planted a tamarisk tree there many years before and called on the name of the Lord there. And you can read that in Genesis 21. Isaac received a special promise from God, and he built an altar there, it says in Genesis 26. And this was probably the very same altar that Jacob came to, to offer his sacrifices there at Beersheba, the one that his father had built 
because of the promise he had received. In some sense, much of what we are as God's people follows us into our new life in Christ. Certainly not everything, but much of what we are. I'll list a few things and then I'll talk about them. Our personalities. When we come to Christ, we bring our personalities with us and God begins to work on those. Our bloodlines, our genealogy. We have some strengths and some weaknesses because of the family we were born into. That's just the way it is. But we take that with us and God begins to work on some of those things. We, we carry it into our new life with us. Our jobs. Although, in some cases, God can begin to make changes there as well. But he doesn't ask us to quit our job when we become a Christian immediately. I guess in some cases he may. But in a lot of ways, um, we continue on. He's placed us there and we continue on there until he moves us somewhere else. And our interests. And I think that's maybe the one that changes the very most, doesn't it? But we bring our interests into our new life. Um, those interests that are good and godly can stay with us and those interests that need to be done away with, God begins to work on those. And so I want to have uh, just a quick look at a couple of New Testament verses that talks about this. Second uh, Corinthians chapter 5, 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And then I'd like to flip the page over, a uh, few pages actually, Galatians chapter 6. Galatians chapter 6 and verse 15. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but a new creation. And so I think what we learn from these two verses is that these things, all these things that have become new, they're not the physical things. It's, he says it doesn't matter whether you are a Jew or a Gentile or whether you're trying to physically alter so that you fit in to some group. That's not what the new creation is about. It's a spiritual new creation. It's an interesting word, new, in 2 Corinthians 5. New means made completely new from the old. And so it doesn't mean out of nothing, brand new. And we all know that. We all carry our warts, the warts we had before we were a Christian, and we carried them through and we carry them through to now. And yet, all things have become new. And so I would suggest that all things important, all those non-physical things have become new and they begin to transform us. And I think uh, we see a little bit of this in Jacob says he's heading to Egypt. He's going to go see Joseph. And he takes everything with him, all of his family and bloodlines. He takes all that with him. And in a lot of ways, we've taken a lot of what we were in the old life into our new life. And God begins to work on those things. God spoke to Israel in the visions of the night. So Jacob comes to Beersheba. He goes to the altar that Isaac made. And he offers an, a sacrifice there. And that night, he has visions, and God speaks to him in these visions. Now, if you recall, more than 40 years before this day, Jacob was about to leave the promised land. 
and he was near Beersheba. And God spoke to him in a dream. He had a vision, remember? The ladder. And so here Jacob was reminded of visions. And God comes to him at night again and gives him visions. And God speaks to him in the visions of the night when he was about to leave the land of Canaan again. And I'm so thankful that God calls him Jacob. He says, Jacob, Jacob. And Jacob says, here I am. He doesn't call him Israel. Years before, God says, you will no longer be known as Jacob. You'll be known as Israel. And God comes to him and reminds him, Jacob, do you know what? I remember. I remember that you are prone to failure. I remember your old life. I know that there's some things that we're still dealing with. And so he calls him Jacob and he encourages him. And I'm so glad that God knows my name and remembers my weakness. I'm encouraged by that. He doesn't expect Israel behavior from me all of the time. He knows that I'm going to fail, and he remembers my weakness. He asks obedience, but he remembers my weakness. Then he says this, do not fear to go down to Egypt. Why would he say that? Probably because Jacob was afraid to go down to Egypt. Why would Jacob be afraid to go down to Egypt? I have a couple of ideas that I'll bring up. Maybe Jacob was afraid to go to Egypt because he remembered that Abraham had gone to Egypt when there was a time of famine, remember? And in Abraham's life, it was an expression of unbelief. I have to go to where I can take care of my family. And he left. And remember, much evil came from Abraham's trip trip to Egypt. Remember, he had told his wife, lie. Lie because you're beautiful and uh, that way they won't kill me on your behalf. And Jacob may have been thinking of this story. Not only that, when Abraham was in Egypt, it's probably very likely where he found Hagar. Almost a guarantee that that was that trip where Abraham found Hagar. And think of all of the heartache that came from that. And read through your New Testament for the references to Hagar and see how that fits in with Jacob's fear to go down to Egypt. Maybe he remembers, maybe Jacob remembers God telling Isaac not to go down to Egypt. When things were rough for Isaac, God said, don't go to Egypt. It's not where you ought to be. And Jacob is maybe remembering. Abraham went because he didn't trust God. And my father went, or my father wanted to go, and God told him, no, that's not where you go. That's in Genesis 26. Because Joseph wasn't there yet. Joseph wasn't there yet. God's plan was still working itself out. Perhaps we, as Jacob, need to be careful of claiming God's commandments or promises to someone else. We do this sometimes when we read the scriptures, don't we? We read verses where God promises to Israel some wonderful blessing that he's going to pour out on them. And we read that part of the verse and we claim that for ourselves and when that doesn't work out we get discouraged and it wasn't God's promise to us in the first place and we're discouraged God never promised us that but we think that he did because we read it and I think Jacob was doing the same sort of thing he said do you know what God when you were dealing with my grandfather and when you were dealing with my father this is what you said and then God comes to him and says no don't be afraid don't be afraid to go to Egypt Joseph's there. Joseph's there. I sent him before you. He has prepared the way. 
He has prepared the land to be um, full of blessing where there's drought all around. And so now you go. Yeah, I told other people that they were not to go, but I'm telling you to go. Does God change his mind? Nope. But God knew that it wasn't appropriate for Abraham. He knew it wasn't appropriate for Isaac. But things had changed. And so God's plan had carried through. And now it was time for Isaac. Sorry, now it was time for Jacob to go into Egypt. God had prepared Joseph and prepared the land. Why else might Jacob have been afraid to go to Egypt? Well, Jacob knew that God told Abraham that Abraham's descendants would be strangers in a land that is not theirs and will serve them and they will afflict them 400 years. We read that in Genesis 15. And so here Jacob is facing all of this and he gets to Beersheba and he realizes he's come to a turning point. And Beersheba was so often a turning point in the lives of these patriarchs. So here he is in Beersheba and he's seeking out God's face and seeking out God's wisdom. And God meets him there and says, yeah, it's time to go. So all of the apprehension that Jacob carried with him, God dealt with and said, don't be afraid. This is my plan. You go. You're being obedient. I've prepared the way. You go now. So as Jacob led his family into this foreign land, he did not know what the future held. At the same time, he knew the future was in God's hand. This, I think, is faith. We don't know what's going to happen, but we know the one who holds the future, and so we trust him. Sometimes that gets confused. We think of faith as trusting without knowing what's going, what, what God's going to do or, or, or the character of God, maybe. We, we think, well, we don't know. Well, we do know. God proved his character over and over and over again to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. And now God is saying, now you move forward. You know, I have given you example after example after example of how I take care of those that trust me. Now you go. And that's faith. And as Jacob, sorry, as God told Jacob, he says in this vision, God tells Jacob that he would make of him a great nation there. So God told Israel, God told Jacob, what his purpose was in bringing this large family down to Egypt. And this is where I really want you to start paying attention. Egypt has always been a picture of the world, that which is not of God that we find around us. Egypt has always been a picture of the world. And look at what, look at what God has done in his preparation. The Egyptians had an exclusive, segregated nature. And so... God brought them in there into Egypt so that they could grow as a large and distinct nation there. If Egypt would have been like Babylon, Babylon took these people in and incorporated them into their culture. Just become one of us. Just become one of us. It would have been very, very difficult. But that's not how Egypt was. Egypt was, do you know what? You're different. You stay away. You live over there. And I find that to be a pretty clear picture of the world around us. You're different. You don't blend in. You don't do what we do. You stay over there. And sometimes we think, well, that's harsh. And then I read this passage and I thought, no. That's one of the ways God uses to protect the distinctiveness or the sanctity 
of those that name the name of Christ. Is he's placed us in a world that doesn't like what we stand for. And so there's a natural segregation for those that are God's people. Now, we fight against that in a lot of ways. We say, well, I don't want to be segregated. I want to be a part of what's around me. I want to be in Babylon, not in Egypt. And I'm so thankful that God in his grace recognized that weakness and brought these people into a land where they were forced to be separate to some degree. By God's grace, those that name the name of Christ and live as though that matters are naturally segregated from the world around us. Our interests aren't the same. Our approach to morality is not the same. We are told, you stay over there. You stay over there. You're an abomination to us. And I'm so thankful that God in his grace made it this way for us because we slip pretty easily. If Israel's purpose was to integrate into the culture, they would find themselves unsuccessful and lonely. There's something I've learned about the Christian life, and it's followed me right from the time I became a Christian, just before I headed off to school. And that is the life of someone who follows Christ and who tries to fit into the world is unsuccessful and lonely. You don't fit there. It doesn't work. And so we find ourselves in a culture where the church is trying to fit into the world and we wonder why we feel lonely and segregated. We are not to fit into the culture. That's not what God has called us to. We are to be distinct. The word is holy, which means set apart for God. And what you'll find if that isn't your purpose or your goal is that you will find that you feel unsuccessful and lonely. And it is by God's grace alone that we are distinct from the world around us. It's high time, Christians, it's high time to quit flirting with the world's values. It's high time for those that name the name of Christ to quit flirting with the world's values. What is a family? What is marriage? What is male? What is female? What is wealth? What is success? And we embrace it all, embrace it all, embrace it all in the name of trying to fit in. It's long past time that Christians quit trying to fit in. What we'll find is that we are miserable and lonely when we do this. It is in God's sufficiency that we find relief from that lack of success and that loneliness where our eyes look out there and realize that we don't fit. The other reason I think Jacob was encouraged God said, yeah, you go down to Egypt, is that God had promised to surely bring Israel out of Egypt again. You go there for a time. You go there for a time because Joseph is there and Joseph will take care of you. You go there for a time. If Joseph wasn't there, no. When Joseph wasn't there, God had said, no, you don't go there. But when Joseph was there, and had prepared the way he had said, you go there for a time. Remember, Joseph as a type, type of Christ. If you're going to go out there into the world, to be in it, but certainly not of it, you go because Christ is there first. And he has prepared a way and prepared for us for a time here. And we can go in confidence knowing this, that this is not our home. How does the song go? 
This world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. The angels beckon me from heaven's open door, and I can't feel at home in this world anymore. I changed the lyrics of the second verse. I have a loving Savior just over in glory land, and I don't expect to stop until I hold his hand. He's waiting now for me in heaven's open door, and I can't feel at home in this world. I think we're too comfortable sometimes. We feel right at home. We think, well, I don't want to go to heaven yet. There's some things I need to accomplish. As if those things are greater than what God has waiting for us once we leave Egypt and we forget. We forget God's promise. You're not there forever. You're just there for a time. Joseph will take care of you. You're just there for a time. And then I'm going to bring you home where you belong. And so we can live in this world in confidence knowing that this is not our home. This isn't our home. We don't belong permanently here. We don't fit in. We're an abomination. Shepherds, we're an abomination to Egypt. We're an abomination in this world we live in. Now, we don't like that, so we try to fit in. And then we're unsuccessful and lonely. And yet, there you have it. God promised that this isn't where we stay. Things are going to be way better. And you're going to pass through this Beersheba again, whatever that is, and come home. But I want to encourage you. Look at what God says to Jacob. He says, and, and Joseph will close your eyes. What is he saying? Well, very often when a person passes away, their eyes remain open. And what God is saying is that Joseph is going to put his hand on your eyes and close them. Who's Joseph? A type of? Christ. And that means, folks, for each one of us, but just as a reminder for some of you that are older, is that Joseph stays with you here in this land. And when your eyes see for the very last time, there's Christ. And he'll put his hand on your eyes and he'll close them because he's there right to the end, right to the very end. He doesn't leave. You might feel lonely and there might be pain and there might be discomfort, but one thing is steady. Christ is right there and he's going to close. He's right there. And when I listen very often to the testimonies of those that have been with believers in their final moments, and very often there's a light, their face lights up at the very end. Not always, but it's like God just gives them a little glimpse of Christ there to close their eyes. So I'm so thankful that God said this to Jacob. Your son who lives, that you thought was dead, who lives, will be right there in your final moments. So, so take heart. So take heart. And it gave Jacob some strength and some vigor to keep moving forward. Take heart. Joseph's going to be right there to close your eyes. He's not going to leave you. Well, that's the first four verses. You guys put your seatbelts on. Then Moses goes on in his writing to list all the people that Jacob took with him. And I don't want to spend too much time there. But I want you to take note of the sons of Judah. The sons of Judah are of special note because this is the line of Jesus Christ. The line of descent to this point went like this. Abraham bore Isaac. Isaac bore Jacob. Jacob bore Judah. Judah bore Perez. Perez bore Hezron. And they all went into Egypt. And that's the beginning of the line of Christ from Abraham. They would have a son and a son and a son and a son. And eventually it would line up with the person of Jesus of Nazareth. 
So we take special note of Judah's line there. And Judah, notice Judah is given some responsibility. We'll get into that a little bit. I think that's wonderful. And so you can find this lineage if you look in Luke chapter 3. 33 and 34, we see this line. For those of you that want to take notes, Luke chapter 3, 33 to 34, we see the line of Judah from Abraham. So Jacob is traveling. He leaves Beersheba. He goes through uh, the desert uh, that's kind of between where uh, Egypt is and where Beersheba or Canaan is, and he heads southwest with his carts. And there to meet him, Joseph. There to meet him, Joseph. Now, all types aside, all allegory aside, can you imagine the meeting between Jacob and his beloved son after he thought he was dead for so long and he sees him there? Can you imagine the outpouring of love in that it must have been a tremendous time? And they wept on each other's necks. I I can't begin to imagine how beautiful that time must have been. And they didn't want to let go, did they? They hung on as long as they could, I'm sure. In Genesis 46, 28 to 30, they wept on each other, the grace of God. And then Jacob sends Judah before him to Joseph to, to point out the way. Look at the responsibility that is given to Judah. Judah, who Jacob didn't trust at all for a while. Remember the, old, the stunt they pulled, Judah and Simeon? The stunt they pulled, killing all those people um, against Jacob's will? But Jacob sees a change in Judah, something transformed. God transformed Judah in some way. So Jacob looks at his sons and says, Judah, you go on ahead. You go on ahead and you take care of some of the details that need to be taken care of. It was fitting for Judah, I think, of the Messianic line to escort the tribe of Israel into Goshen, the land of separation and abundance. Goshen, by the way, is in the Nile Delta. So you had the Nile River, and as the Nile River approached the sea, it spread out into branches, and those branches watered the land of Goshen. It's the, it's the richest land in, in all of Egypt. And Christ goes before us and leads us into, if we're obedient, the richest land available in Egypt. He's provided all we need. And Jacob weeps on Joseph's shoulder and says, now let me die since I have seen your face because you are still alive. In other words, I am completely fulfilled in knowing my son is alive. Are you completely fulfilled as a Christian knowing that Christ is alive? Is it enough? Or are you looking for that other thing that somehow will complete? This reunion of Israel with Joseph is more than he ever dreamed. What a dramatic change, uh, Someone brought this up. I won't tell you who. Someone brought this up to me over the Christmas holidays. What a dramatic change. Remember what Jacob was saying before? Everything's against me. The whole world is against me. Just everything's bad. And then he sees Joseph and he says, it's enough. It's enough. It's all I need. Entirely fulfilled. What a difference. Life without Joseph and life with Joseph. Life without Christ and life with Christ. And Joseph has a plan. He tells his family of the plan to ask for the area of Goshen. Tell them, listen to this, tell them who you really are. Tell them who you really are. You're shepherds and you're keepers of livestock. You're not farmers. You're keepers of livestock. Tell them who you really are because in doing that, you're an abomination to them and you can remain separated from everything that is Egyptian. Tell them who you really are. 
so that you can be an abomination to them and get the best of what Egypt has to offer. I love God's paradoxes. Don't you? When God works out something that should never work and he just makes it work, tell them who you really are so that you can have the best of their land because you're an abomination to them. I think only God could have worked out the details of that. And I thankfully did. Do you tell your people around you who you really are? Some of them, you're going to be an abomination to them. And others are going to say, Goshen sounds like a pretty good place. Sounds like a pretty good place. It's pretty dry out here. We're not able to grow anything. Goshen sounds like a pretty good place. Can I come and join you there in Goshen? Yeah, the Egyptians considered sheep unclean. And therefore, they hated shepherds. And if this doesn't illustrate perfectly the world's attitude toward those that are gods, I don't know what does. Just going to read a couple passages that Jesus mentioned, and I wonder sometimes if he didn't have Egypt in mind when he said this. John chapter 15, verses 18 and 19. If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet, because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. I don't know about you, but I think Jesus is a truth teller. And he goes on a couple chapters later in John chapter 17. As he's praying to his father in heaven, he says this. Speaking of us, I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Listen to this. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. And for their sakes, I sanctify myself, that they also may be sanctified by the truth. That word sanctified, set apart for a purpose. And it says, Christ praying to God says, set them apart for a purpose by your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have also sent them into the world. And for those, and for their sakes, I set myself apart, that they also may be set apart by the truth. I wonder if he wasn't thinking of Joseph and Egypt when he gave this passage. He was aware of it, I'm sure. And then finally in 1 John chapter 3, verse 13, he gives, John the Elder gives us some encouragement. And he says, do not marvel, my brethren, if the world hates you. Don't be surprised. Shouldn't shock you. Sometimes it does still. You know, you take a stand on something like, say, abortion, something controversial, and the world looks and says, you guys are out of touch with reality. They'll say something like, it's 2016. You don't understand. Culture changes. You can't do what you're doing. You can't pick it outside of an abortion clinic. This is their right. You can't do that. You guys get lost. If you want to be a Christian, be a Christian somewhere else, but not here. And we're a bit surprised because we're saying, that's a human life. You can't kill people. And we're shocked. And John comes along and says, don't be shocked. 
my brethren, if the world hates you. It hated Christ first. And if you're followers of him, of course, it's, of course the world is going to hate you. So don't be shocked. That's where we find ourselves. That's where we are. And I'm so thankful that Christ prepared the way. And now that Christ has sent his spirit into the world, he has asked us to go into the world too and represent him as ambassadors. Is that something we can do in the new year? Do we trust him enough? We have one yes. That's not bad out of 100 people. We got one out of 100. You're the lost sheep, Mike. I hope not. No, that's... I think we ought to. I think we ought to have the boldness with Christ at the helm to be able to move forward into the world and give people a, just a glimpse maybe of how good the land of Goshen is that is provided for. So I encourage you again, we're, we're new in the year. Do you pray that God would bring someone into your life that you could talk to? Or do you float day by day? Do you have a goal? If you're waiting for someone to come talk to you about Christ, you're going to be waiting a long time because most people don't want to talk about Christ. But if you're praying that God would bring people, people into your life that might have an interest, and then that observe your life and see that it's different in Goshen than it is in the rest of Egypt, that there's provision there and it's not dry and destitute, and those people look and say, that seems pretty good, then you might have the opportunity. It starts with God and it ends. Be willing to be a tool. It takes courage to be a tool, I think, sometimes. But that is what God has asked of us. Let's pray.